Welcome to Fight Back Radio, the Marxist voice of labor and youth in Canada, and the best source for a revolutionary analysis of current events, perspectives, and theory. The following is part three of a reading of the Fight Back document, Indigenous Struggle and the Fight for Socialism, Revolution, Not Reconciliation. The document can be found on our website and can be purchased in booklet form from our store on marxist.ca. This reading is performed by comrade Mike Lickers. Truth and Reconciliation There have been a number of government-funded inquiries and commissions over the years investigating the problems and issues facing Indigenous communities. The 1996 Royal Commission on Aboriginal Affairs called for Indigenous communities to have greater control over development and resource extraction on their own territory. The Commission also called for the federal government to invest $30 billion in education, childcare, housing, and employment for Indigenous communities. None of the recommendations were ever implemented, either by the federal Liberal government at the time or by the subsequent Conservative government of Stephen Harper. Then there was the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, which found that the residential schools were undeniably an act of cultural genocide and made several policy recommendations to address the harmful impacts. The problems have been identified time and time again, but no government takes genuine action. Canada is one of the wealthiest countries in the world, and there is no reason why all of this wealth could not be put into resolving the problems facing Indigenous communities, ending poverty and unemployment on and off reserves, ending the boil water advisories, massive improvement to and building of housing on reserves and a national housing plan across Canada, universal health services, including funding for culturally relevant health services for Indigenous peoples, Northern development that involves and employs Indigenous peoples at all stages of production, and a network of universal social services to address the myriad of social barriers Indigenous people face. These are the sorts of policies that can begin to significantly address the harm caused by hundreds of years of colonization and oppression. But these policies contradict the profit motive of capitalism, which continues to treat Indigenous people as an inconvenience to plundering natural resources. So long as the Canadian state remains under the control of the capitalists, their relentless quest to profit from the exploitation of Canada's land and resources will continue. The ensuing disregard for Indigenous land and treaty rights represents an irreconcilable contradiction between the Canadian state and Indigenous peoples. UNDRIP AND THE SHAM OF RECONCILIATION The Truth and Reconciliation Commission also called upon Canadian governments at all levels to adopt and implement the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, UNDRIP, also known as the, quote, Framework for Reconciliation, unquote. UNDRIP recognizes the rights of Indigenous peoples to self-determination, autonomy, and self-government, and emphasizes the concept of, quote, free, prior, and informed consent, unquote, 
for activity on indigenous territory. Because of this, the Declaration has understandably received considerable support amongst indigenous peoples in Canada and around the world. Article 3 of UNDRIP, for example, states that, quote, indigenous peoples have the right to self-determination, end quote, which includes the right to, quote, freely determine their political status and freely pursue their economic, social, and cultural development, end quote. Article 4 of the Declaration states that, quote, Indigenous peoples, in exercising their right to self-determination, have the right to autonomy or self-government in matters relating to their internal and local affairs, as well as ways and means for financing their autonomous functions, end quote. Article 26 states that, quote, 1. Indigenous peoples have the right to the lands, territories, and resources which they have traditionally owned, occupied, or otherwise used or acquired. 2. Indigenous peoples have the right to use, own, develop, and control the lands, territories, and resources that they possess by reason of traditional ownership or other traditional occupation or use, as well as those which they have otherwise acquired. 3. States shall give legal recognition and protection to these lands, territories, and resources. Such recognition shall be conducted with due respect to the customs, traditions, and land tenure systems of the indigenous people concerned. End quote. Article 32 states that, quote, 1. Indigenous peoples have the right to determine and develop priorities and strategies for the development or use of their lands or territories and other resources. 2. States shall consult and cooperate in good faith with the indigenous peoples concerned through their own representative institutions in order to obtain their free and informed consent prior to the approval of any project affecting their lands or territories and other resources, particularly in connection with the development, utilization, or exploitation of mineral, water, or other resources. 3. States shall provide effective mechanisms for just and fair redress for any such activities, and appropriate measures shall be taken to mitigate adverse environmental, economic, social, cultural, or spiritual impact, end quote. UNDRIP has its problems, of course, the most glaring of which is that it can never be implemented under capitalism. However, it is interesting to note that more than 140 states voted in favor of the document, with four voting against. Australia, New Zealand, the United States, and Canada. Given the colonial history of these countries, the opposition of these states to UNDRIP really should not have come as a surprise to anyone. Officially, these four countries would eventually quote-unquote endorse or quote-unquote support UNDRIP with each of them finding unique ways to completely ignore it in reality. The Harper government at the time, reflecting the interests of Canada's ruling class, openly stated that their opposition to the Declaration was based on concerns about the requirement for free, prior, and informed consent. The Harper government argued that it could lead to the reopening of previously settled land claims, and that it could also be seen as granting indigenous people the power to quote-unquote veto major resource extraction projects, an idea the capitalist class simply cannot stomach because it threatens their class rule over the nation.
the liberals under Justin Trudeau adopted a different approach from the Harper conservatives, at least superficially in words. Trudeau has talked a lot about quote-unquote reconciliation and quote-unquote nation-to-nation relations, but has, in effect, continued the same colonialist approach and policies that the Canadian state has always taken. In May 2016, the Trudeau Liberals formally dropped the Canadian government's objector status to UNDRIP. Indigenous Affairs Minister Carolyn Bennett announced at the time that, quote, We are now a full supporter of the Declaration without qualification. We intend nothing less than to adopt and implement the Declaration in accordance with the Canadian Constitution, end quote. However, less than two months later, then-Justice Minister Jody Wilson-Raybould stated in a speech to the Assembly of First Nations General Assembly that UNDRIP could not be adopted as law because it contradicted the Indian Act. She said the following, quote, So as much as I would tomorrow like to cast into the fire of history the Indian Act so that the nations can be reborn in its ashes, this is not a practical option, which is why simplistic approaches such as adopting the UNDRIP as being Canadian law, are unworkable and, respectfully, a political distraction to undertaking the hard work required to actually implement it." End quote. The Bourgeois State and Resource Extraction Prior to coming to power, Trudeau seemed to indicate that his government would accept the UNDRIP requirements for free, prior, and informed consent from Indigenous peoples before certain projects would be approved. At one time, he even said that a quote-unquote no from an Indigenous community with regard to a pipeline project would result in the cancellation of the project. That has all changed. The Canadian ruling class would not stand for such a position by the federal government. The oil corporations have been economically squeezed and are panicked by the rise of the United States as the world's largest producer of oil and natural gas. The dominance of the U.S. has made it more difficult for the Canadian oil corporations to get oil and gas products into international markets. With limited access to infrastructure in the United States, and the imposition of discounted prices. The oil barons in Canada are desperate to develop their own infrastructure in the form of pipelines and processing facilities. The actual adoption and implementation of UNDRIP by the federal government could potentially threaten the ability of the ruling class to determine and control resource extraction and pipeline construction, which is why the ruling class is totally opposed to UNDRIP and the federal government has backtracked on it. The oil corporations and the right wing, particularly in Alberta, have launched a noisy campaign in favor of pipeline construction at all costs. According to them, any opposition to pipeline construction, whether it be from environmental groups, indigenous peoples, or even other provincial governments, BC and Quebec for example, must be mercilessly crushed from promising to guarantee the free, prior, and informed consent of Indigenous people for projects affecting their lands. Reflecting this pressure from the ruling class, the Trudeau government now says in relation to UNDRIP that it will only, quote, 
aim at securing indigenous peoples free, prior, and informed consent, end quote, and can no longer guarantee it. Trudeau later clarified this statement and said that Ottawa does not recognize the unconditional right of First Nations to unilaterally block projects, adding that, quote, no, they don't have a veto, end quote. By characterizing the free, prior, and informed consent of Indigenous peoples with regard to a resource extraction as a quote-unquote veto, the ruling class and its political representatives are effectively telling Indigenous peoples that whatever lip service is paid to UNDRIP, Indigenous peoples still will have no say in the economic activity that takes place on their lands. The federal and provincial governments and the corporations will have the final say. At best, indigenous people may be quote-unquote consulted, but the reality of the situation clearly shows that this quote-unquote consultation is completely meaningless, if it takes place at all. From the point of view of the bourgeoisie, the capitalist class and their state must have control over resource extraction and must be able to protect profits. Economic mastery over the nation and control of economic resources is, after all, one of the main tasks of the bourgeois democratic revolution, and one of the key pillars in the class rule of the bourgeoisie. They will not give these powers up without a fight. The provincial and federal governments are, in the final analysis, the executive committee for the ruling class, the capitalist class. The Canadian state, therefore, represents the aims and interests of the ruling class and has no real interest in the question of Indigenous rights or Indigenous title. Prime Minister Trudeau in Ottawa or Premier John Horgan in BC may talk and talk about Indigenous rights and adopting the principles of UNDRIP, but when it comes down to the question of the interests and profits of the ruling class, for example in the form of a pipeline, the Canadian state will side with the capitalists and the corporations every single time. Because of the support for UNDRIP, there are calls for the Canadian government to finally implement the Declaration as a solution to the question of Indigenous rights. However, some of the problems with UNDRIP have already been graphically revealed. The Canadian government has already promised to implement UNDRIP but is changing the wording to take away guarantees of free, prior, and informed consent for Indigenous peoples. One way or another, the ruling class and the Canadian state will never allow the question of Indigenous right and title to threaten resource extraction projects or any other projects of major economic importance. Bourgeois law will always be used to protect the interests of the capitalists, and will always be used against the rights of indigenous peoples. Thus, even if UNDRIP is adopted in some form as law, the reality is that Canadian governments will never be able to commit to guaranteeing free, prior, and informed consent, and can never grant indigenous peoples control over resource extraction on their own territories, because the means of production remain under the private ownership of the capitalists. You cannot plan what you do not control, and you cannot control what you do not own. As long as the ownership of the means of production remains private and in the hands of the capitalist class, production and energy extraction will continue at the expense of society, 
indigenous rights, and the environment for the profit of the few. Therefore, only a socialist government that eradicates private ownership of the land and the profit motive will be able to guarantee free, prior, and informed consent. In fact, this will be our starting and not our end point. The aim will be to work in complete partnership with indigenous communities to provide jobs and livable communities on their traditional lands. Unceded Land In July of 2017, the BC government announced that it would introduce legislation to implement UNDRIP. Over two years later, it did so, though Premier John Horgan was also sure to emphasize that the legislation would not give First Nations a right to quote-unquote veto resource projects. It is expected that it will take even longer for the impact of the legislation to be felt. In the meantime, the RCMP invaded traditional Wet'suwet'en territory in British Columbia, enforcing an injunction on behalf of the Trans-Canada Oil and Gas Corporation to remove checkpoints blocking access to coastal gas link pipeline construction. The attack on the Wet'suwet'en showed what the ruling class and the state considered to be free, prior, and informed consent. The proposed coastal gas link pipeline will run through traditional and unceded Wet'suwet'en territory. There is significant opposition to this plan on the part of the Wet'suwet'en and their traditional leadership. The hereditary chiefs of the Wet'suwet'en are opposed to the pipeline construction through their traditional territory and have banned it. Despite this, the oil corporations, the state, and the right wing argued that they did in fact have the quote-unquote consent of indigenous peoples to build the pipeline. In the face of the opposition of the Wet'suwet'en hereditary chiefs, the corporations and the government argued that agreements had been signed with all of the elected indigenous bands along the pipeline route in British Columbia. They considered these agreements to represent the quote-unquote consent of indigenous peoples to the construction of the pipeline. However, these agreements with the band councils really have nothing to do with the situation, and in fact mean very little because the band councils do not have jurisdiction outside the reserve areas. The band councils are colonial institutions imposed by the Indian Act and only have jurisdiction over reserve lands, which are very small, defined areas that are run similar to municipalities. Here we face another source of confusion. Who are the genuine representatives of indigenous peoples, quote-unquote hereditary chiefs, or quote-unquote elected band councils? There can be an impression that it is a choice between a supposedly hereditary monarchy and democratic elections. But this is not the reality on the ground. The Canadian state forcibly broke up the traditional forms of government, the potlatch, the longhouses, the clan mothers, etc., and imposed quote-unquote elected band councils as adjuncts to the Indian agents. These traditional forms of governance were often far closer to the people and reflected their wishes from the bottom up, better than the alien system of band councils imposed from the top down. There is often a class divide, where a minority of wealthy members of a First Nation have a monopoly of power in the band council, while the majority of working class members live in poor conditions. These indigenous bourgeois 
often go on to become liberal and conservative politicians, and are the layer which the oil and mining corporations rely upon. There has even been talk about, quote, indigenous-owned, unquote, pipelines, as if this would be a solution when the majority of working-class people on reserves face all the risks and none of the benefits. It is better to conceptualize these forms of governance as traditional versus band council, rather than hereditary versus elected. However, we have used the common terminology so as not to generate confusion. That being said, this observation is not a quote-unquote one-size-fits-all rule. The bottom line is that it is up to indigenous peoples to determine how they govern themselves. In some instances, the traditional forms of governance have been totally eradicated and no longer exist. In other instances, elected band councils have reflected the desire to struggle from the bottom up. We have to look at each nation in its particularity, while understanding that there is also a class divide within indigenous communities. This approach allows us to understand disputes such as that involving the Wet'suwet'en, and to cut through the propaganda of the corporations and state. The Wet'suwet'en hereditary chiefs have argued that the agreements signed by the band councils have no validity on unceded traditional territories outside the reserves. Indeed, the coastal gas link pipeline is not passing through the reserves where the band councils have jurisdiction, but is in fact passing through traditional territory. The hereditary chiefs claim title to this land, traditionally have jurisdiction there, and have not granted consent to the building of the pipeline. The question of unceded territory pertains primarily in British Columbia, where land was taken from indigenous peoples without any treaties being signed. But this question also exists in other parts of the country, such as New Brunswick. The indigenous peoples of New Brunswick did not surrender their land through treaties. Peace and friendship treaties were signed in 1760 and 1761 in the Maritimes. However, the Mi'kmaq and the Maliseet, for example, did not surrender rights or title to lands or resources in these treaties. There is the example from 2013 involving the Alsapogtog First Nation in New Brunswick that is remarkably similar to the Wet'suwet'en situation. Following intense protests by the members of the Alsapogtog First Nation against the fracking of shale gas on traditional unceded territory, in 2016, the First Nation government filed a land claim on behalf of all Mi'kmaq people, claiming title to around one-third of the province. As explained previously in this document, the Royal Proclamation of 1763 formally recognized that all lands would be considered indigenous lands until ceded by treaty. Over the centuries since the Proclamation of 1763, the government of British Columbia did not, in fact, negotiate many treaties, with the result being that much of the land in the province is not covered by treaty. This means that according to Canadian law, much of the traditional indigenous territory in the province was in fact unceded, as it was never formally surrendered, sold, lost in a war, etc. Indeed, the ruling class is deeply concerned about what the adoption of UNDRIP would mean for the province of British Columbia after Premier Horgan announced that, quote, 
BC will be the first province in Canada to introduce legislation to implement the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People, end quote. The Vancouver Sun explained that, quote, a third article of, of UNDRIP grants Indigenous peoples the right of redress for the lands, territories, and resources which they have traditionally owned or otherwise occupied or used, and which have been confiscated, taken, occupied, used, or damaged without their free, prior, and informed consent. Given the absence of treaties over most of BC, the lands, territories, and resources that have been confiscated, taken, occupied, used, or damaged without free, prior, and informed consent would constitute pretty much the entire province." End quote. The lack of treaties in BC did eventually force the implementation of the British Columbia Treaty process, which started in the early 1990s, to begin treaty negotiations and resolve claims of Aboriginal title. The hereditary chiefs of the Gitsen and Wet'suwet'en nations went to court in the 1980s, claiming unextinguished Aboriginal title over their traditional territory. In the Delgamuk v. British Columbia case in 1997, the Supreme Court of Canada ruled that the Wet'suwet'en people had not given up the rights and title to a large swath of their traditional territory, which was never ceded by treaty and recognized that Aboriginal title continues to exist where Indigenous nations had never signed a treaty with the Crown. The traditional territories of many Indigenous peoples in British Columbia are claimed by the Crown, but were never paid for, conquered, or acquired by treaty. However, while recognizing that the Wet'suwet'en had never ceded their land or extinguished their rights and title to their traditional territory, the Supreme Court, in its Delgamuk ruling, did not fully define these rights or title, leaving that definition up to a future case. Naturally, this subsequent case never happened. This is by design. The question of Indigenous rights and Aboriginal title were ignored for centuries by the Canadian state. Canadian law always used as a weapon to colonize and criminalize Indigenous people, such as through the residential school and reserve systems. Even when legal precedent eventually forced the state's hand, provincial and federal governments either completely ignored legal precedent or simply tie things up in the courts endlessly. The Wet'suwet'en have never had the financial resources to launch a claim and legally determine title to their lands due to the enormous costs of an Aboriginal title case. However, the oil corporations and provincial and federal governments are terrified at such a prospect. Because a ruling recognizing Wet'suwet'en title over their traditional territory would put an end to multiple pipeline projects. This explains the urgency on the part of the oil corporations and the provincial and federal governments to get injunctions issued against the Wet'suwet'en checkpoints and to get the pipelines constructed as quickly as possible before the legal ground can shift. The federal and provincial governments of Canada are simply ignoring the legal framework of the Delgamuk case. This is nothing new. Bourgeois law is intended to protect bourgeois interests and the private ownership of the means of production. Instead, governments and corporations are consulting and signing agreements with band councils that do not have jurisdiction over these lands 
and then turn around and claim these agreements are quote-unquote proof of the quote-unquote consent of indigenous communities to the construction of these pipelines. Some have argued that if the Wet'suwet'en were to go back to court, they would have a strong claim to title over their territories, which is true. However, history itself has clearly demonstrated that the courts and the law cannot be relied upon by indigenous peoples. Bourgeois law is designed to protect the interests and profits of the capitalists. The conflict between the interests and profits of the ruling class and the rights of indigenous people will never be resolved through bourgeois law. As one First Nation chief recently said, quote, You cannot dismantle the master's house using the master's tools. End quote. Land Acknowledgements The Truth and Reconciliation Commission also recommended the use of land acknowledgement statements, arguing that they could help promote reconciliation. From being a routine part of indigenous ceremonies and meetings, as well as progressive and left-wing events, land acknowledgements have become commonplace at the start of school days, conferences, ceremonies, and sporting events and music events, such as Symphony Nova Scotia performances, and at Edmonton Oilers and Winnipeg Jets games in the NHL. Under Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, land acknowledgements have been standard at the start of federal announcements and events. This was also the case in Alberta, under the Notley NDP government, since reversed under Kenny's UCP government. There are the beginnings of a debate in Indigenous communities over the value of land acknowledgements. Many believe that land acknowledgements do have value and that they help promote awareness and thus reconciliation. Others are of the opinion that land acknowledgements are meaningless, empty platitudes, not to mention patronizing. While land acknowledgements as they are today do not really do anything to benefit indigenous peoples or further their struggles, to many it is important that people are aware of the history of colonization, oppression, and genocide. On the other hand, others have argued that rather than focusing on empty rhetoric, we should be focused on issues such as addressing the terrible conditions on reserves. Land acknowledgements can also have unintended reactionary consequences. In some cases, such as in the Toronto area, the land purchased by the Crown was contested between different Indigenous peoples. The question of land acknowledgements in these areas can hold open arguments between Indigenous peoples about who was present on the land at the time or whose land it was. These types of arguments can only have reactionary consequences, as it cuts across precisely the unity and solidarity needed to advance the struggle. Like almost anything else, we must view the question of land acknowledgements through the lens of the class struggle. Through this lens, it becomes very clear that as a statement of the oppressed against the bourgeois Canadian state and its history of colonial genocide, Land acknowledgements are progressive. However, when used as a purely performative act by this or that wing of that very same bourgeois state, or by one of the main capitalist parties, land acknowledgements are reactionary, and really only serve as a smokescreen and amount to little more than an attempt to absolve the Canadian state and ruling class of responsibility for historic crimes against Indigenous people. A similar argument 
could be used in the case of unions, NGOs, quote-unquote left groups, and academics who use land acknowledgments in the place of militant action, or any real solution to the problems facing indigenous people. The use of land acknowledgments by the federal government, the very body that presides over the Indian Act, or by BC Premier John Horgan, who presides over the sending of the RCMP to invade Zwetsweten lands to protect corporate interests, or by former Alberta Premier Rachel Notley, whose unrelenting push for pipelines would surely have brought her into conflict with Indigenous peoples, are really only examples of institutional hypocrisy. Socialism and Reconciliation The whole concept of quote-unquote reconciliation under capitalism is a sham. Why should oppressed and subjugated peoples have to seek reconciliation with their oppressors in the first place. The whole idea is nonsense. Besides, how can one seriously talk of reconciliation when indigenous peoples are still fighting for basic human rights, for recognition of title, for right to the free, prior, and informed consent, etc.? There can never be reconciliation under capitalism. The very foundation of Canada is rooted in the oppression, subjugation, and exploitation of Indigenous people. The ruling class and the Canadian state cannot allow the question of Indigenous rights and title to interfere with resource extraction and profits. In fact, the ruling class considers the prospect of Indigenous rights and title interfering with resource extraction to be a threat to national security. A workers' government, on the other hand, would not adopt the hypocritical mantra of quote-unquote reconciliation, nor would it expect it from indigenous peoples. Rather, a socialist revolution would be interested in the genuine liberation of indigenous peoples from centuries of colonial oppression and exploitation. A government of working people would not be interested in imposing any sort of solution to the question of indigenous liberation on indigenous peoples, but rather would stand together, shoulder to shoulder, in solidarity with indigenous peoples in their struggle for liberation, providing any and all assistance to achieve this end. The liberation of indigenous peoples is a task that must be carried out by indigenous peoples themselves. Indigenous people must be able to control their own fate democratically, more than simply guaranteeing, quote, free, prior, and informed consent, unquote. Socialism means that Indigenous peoples would not be merely, quote-unquote, consulted, but actively involved in the democratic decision-making and would be guaranteed land and resource rights. A socialist government would scrap the Indian Act as a first step towards ending the colonial subjugation of indigenous peoples and would immediately recognize indigenous autonomy and self-government where declared. A massive program of social funding would be launched to provide education, healthcare, and housing for all indigenous peoples. All resources would be made available to end the scandal of unsafe drinking water. A socialist government would commit to resolving all land title claims immediately 
and to providing compensation for any and all lands occupied, stolen, or confiscated by the bourgeoisie and their state. Socialism and Resource Extraction To achieve sustainable, harmonious production means we need to democratically plan our society. We need to plan how and where we produce, what we produce, and whom we produce for. Such rational planning can obviously not be achieved under capitalism. It cannot be achieved so long as the ownership of the means of production remains in the hands of the capitalist class. So long as production is for profit and not for need and according to a rational plan. In order to plan the productive forces in a harmonious manner, the ownership of the means of production must be taken by the working class via a workers' state. The solution to these problems is clear. It is only through nationalizing the means of production and instituting a scientific, democratic, and rational plan that we will overcome the miseries of capitalism, exploitation, inequality, and poverty. It is only through the building of a socialist society that we will be able to bring our productive technique into harmony with both the needs of society and the environment and take humanity forward. Trotsky explained that a nationalized planned economy requires democracy as the human body requires oxygen. Under socialism, under a regime of genuine and thorough workers' democracy, all communities, indigenous and non-indigenous, would not just be quote-unquote consulted about economic activity in their areas and regions. Nor would these communities be guaranteed the simple right to quote-unquote free prior and informed consent. Rather, socialism and workers' democracy inherently implies that communities would have a direct democratic say in the planning and implementation of activity in their regions. Only with the socialist transformation of society will indigenous peoples finally be empowered to genuinely, democratically determine their own fate and to have direct control over economic activity on their territory, including resource extraction and etc. Without the profit motive, local indigenous communities can be genuinely and intimately involved in all development on their territories. Under the democratic control of the working class and communities, the wealth generated by such development can directly benefit the people, who must also play a direct role in planning and implementing such development to ensure concerns about environmental and community safety are adequately addressed and to provide training and jobs for local residents. Socialism and Self-Determination A common demand among indigenous communities and their supporters is for indigenous self-determination. This has created some confusion amongst Marxist circles, as there are different understandings of the term. Self-determination in Marxist literature is closely associated with the national question. There are parallels between the Marxist analysis of oppressed nationalities and the struggle for indigenous liberation, just as there are similarities between this question and the fight against racism, but they are not exactly the same thing. It is important to clarify 
both the traditional Marxist usage and the current popular usage of the term self-determination in order not to end up making contradictory or reactionary statements. Lenin wrote widely on the right of oppressed nations to self-determination, up to and including separation. The Tsarist Empire was a prison house of nations. The great Russians, who were a minority in the empire, controlled and oppressed the Poles, Ukrainians, Georgians, Finns, Jews, Latvians, Estonians, and others. A large part of the populations of these nations had been brought into political consciousness in the context of a hatred of the national oppression perpetuated by Russian Tsarism. These nations typically spoke a common language, in a region with recognized borders, with a community of history and culture and a cohesive economy. Nationalist political factions within these nations often advance the formation of an independent nation-state as a solution to national oppression. The Russian Marxists wanted to make it clear to the oppressed nationalities that the working class had no interest in continuing czarist oppression, that they would fight to eradicate all the laws, regulations, and other injustices perpetrated under the banner of the empire. This meant defending and upholding the right of an oppressed nationality to the utmost autonomy in governing its own affairs, including the democratic right to form a new nation-state. However, that did not mean that the Bolsheviks wanted the nations to separate. In fact, they wanted the exact opposite. They wanted a fighting unity of the Russian workers with all of the oppressed against their common oppressor the Tsarist regime. By ensuring the right to self-determination and separation, Lenin hoped to cut across any mutual suspicion and win a voluntary union of the oppressed. And, if a nationality still wished to form an independent nation-state, then so be it. They had that democratic right. Self-determination of indigenous nations has a different connotation to the above. For example, there is the Diné Declaration that was passed at the Second Joint General Assembly of the Indian Brotherhood of the Northwest Territories in 1975. It states the following, quote, Our plea to the world is to help us in our struggle to find a place in the world community where we can exercise our right to self-determination as a distinct people and as a nation, end quote. This can seem analogous to the demands for independence of the nationalities in the Tsarist Empire, or to Scotland, Quebec, and Catalonia today. But when one reads the entire declaration, there is a very different intention. Demands in the Diné Declaration include the following. To control and decide on development in their lands and who benefits from such development to maintain a sharing and egalitarian society and economy, their own self-government, environmental planning to protect hunting and fishing rights, royalties from mining and other development that exists or is permitted, control of education when in a majority, and involvement when not. All of the above are entirely progressive and supported wholeheartedly by Marxists. Other First Nations have advanced similar demands. In Marxist terminology, they would be encompassed in the demand for increased autonomy. In fact, 
much of the above could be implemented in a socialist society as part of local community control, regardless of whether the population is indigenous or not. No community should face the environmental risk of development without negotiations to ensure the risk is acceptable, while ensuring that those bearing the risk have all the information and get a commensurate reward. Schooling should encompass all the languages and cultures of a local community. In a workers' democracy, people will freely determine the exact details. While calling for self-determination, sovereignty, and recognition as a nation, the Diné Declaration explicitly does not call for the formation of a nation-state. They say, quote, Our goal is maximum independence and self-determination of the Diné Nation within the country of Canada through a just and equitable land settlement, end quote. They also guarantee the rights of non-native inhabitants on Diné land. This call for autonomy is combined with an appeal to the Canadian working class, who are oppressed by the same corporations and governments who oppress the Diné. Quote, The great majority of people in Canada are like ourselves in being relatively powerless in the face of big companies and by governments. In the face of our assertion of our rights, the choice that others must make is between ourselves, on the one hand, and the outside developers that are increasingly accountable to no one on the other hand. By joining us in our struggle, people can begin as well to liberate themselves." End quote. This is a fantastic call for class solidarity, and entirely the correct approach to achieve liberation and an end to oppression. As far as we can ascertain, no First Nation in Canada has ever called for the formation of a new nation-state. Some ultra-left students in Toronto or Vancouver, having read a very small amount of Lenin and not understood it, have advanced the demand for independence of First Nations without thinking this demand through. To start with, to enforce independence on a people who are not calling for it themselves is not much better than enforcing unity on a people who are demanding independence. Secondly, independence for whom? Is this supposed to be one large indigenous nation? But there are more than 600 recognized First Nations in Canada, each with a unique culture, history, and language. It is frankly racist to say that all indigenous people are the same. One may as well say that as Europeans, all French, Germans, and British are the same, or that all Africans are the same, or do these people envision a new nation-state for every First Nation? Almost all First Nations have interlocking land claims. How would this be resolved with more than 600 new nation-states? The indigenous First Nations within Canada are not the same as the nation-states in old Europe, and they do not pretend to be. The only area that could perhaps be analogous would be the Inuit in Nunavut. But even this is a theoretical abstraction, and currently, nobody is calling for the independence of the territory. For the national question, and the struggle for indigenous liberation, it is necessary to take every struggle in its concrete reality, and not impose an artificial schema on developments. Scotland is not the same as Quebec just as the indigenous struggle is not the same as racism against black people in the USA. 
Each has to be taken in its own particularity. Marxists support the just demands of the oppressed First Nations for increased control over their traditional lands, their education, their culture, and their economic development. And we do not force these communities to adopt slogans that do not correlate with their own struggles or wishes. At the same time, we should underline the limitations of autonomy for indigenous peoples under capitalism, of which Nunavut is a good example. The creation of the territory of Nunavut in 1999 was the result of negotiations between the Inuit and the Canadian government since the 1970s. There were significant political gains for the Inuit, who made up 85% of the territory's population, as the agreement allowed them to have greater control over their lands, education, culture, and languages. However, the territory remains highly dependent on financial transfers from the federal government, in addition to being at the mercy of large multinational companies, particularly mining companies who establish themselves in order to exploit the natural resources and cheap labor and then leave. Twenty years since the creation of Nunavut, the Inuit continue to face significant economic challenges, such as the exorbitant price of commodities, the highest unemployment rate among the provinces and territories, and a glaring lack of essential care and services. Poor material conditions food insecurity, and a significant shortage of housing resulting in overcrowding lead to serious health problems. The infant mortality rate in Nunavut is three times higher than the national average, and the territory is affected by an epidemic of tuberculosis, the gravity of which rivals some third world countries. A lack of resources in the education system also limits the ability to protect the Inuit languages which have continued to decline since the creation of Nunavut. The terrible living conditions in Nunavut demonstrate the immense limitations imposed by capitalism on the emancipation of indigenous peoples, whether or not they have autonomy on paper. Post-colonial theory, a dead end. Following an era of revolution in the 1970s, the class struggle entered a period of decline, reaching its low ebb in the 1990s after the collapse of the Soviet Union. This had profoundly negative effects on left-wing intellectuals who abandoned Marxism, as is quite common in periods of reaction. There was a proliferation of all sorts of ideas reflecting the prevailing pessimism of the left. With regards to the indigenous question, this has been reflected in the academic ideas of quote-unquote post-colonialism. We have explained how Canada was settled by white people from Europe with the goal of exterminating, replacing, and assimilating the indigenous population. The racist legacy from this horrible crime visited upon indigenous peoples is alive and well today. The post-colonial theorists recognize these facts and state that the solution is to quote-unquote decolonize. At first glance, it would appear that we should support the call to decolonize, which one would assume means to fight against colonialism. So far, this is all ABC for a Marxist. As they say, however, the devil is in the details. 
The logical conclusion of post-colonial theory is the idea that indigenous peoples and non-indigenous workers have conflicting or opposing interests. In a Rabble.ca article titled, quote, Building Rage, Decolonizing Class War, end quote, the author suggests that, quote, there are deeply rooted contradictions between aims and interests of a colonized working class and an urban, non-indigenous working class, end quote. The author goes on to question whether demanding a higher minimum wage depends on continued or increased exploitation of some workers within the national borders of Canada, perhaps those who are forced to work on the black market. In another article from the left journal Canadian Dimension, entitled, quote, A 12-Step Program for a Post-Colonial Future, end quote. The author suggests that non-Indigenous Canadians are, quote-unquote, privileged, precisely because of the oppression of Indigenous peoples, meaning that non-Indigenous workers directly benefit from the latter's continued subjugation. The solution offered is that non-Indigenous people must undermine and surrender their own, quote-unquote, privileges. The entire thrust of much of this literature is to shift the focus away from a class struggle against the capitalists, who own most of the land and resources and make all of the major decisions, and onto a struggle of indigenous peoples against the quote-unquote settlers as a whole. In the article, quote, Decolonization is not a metaphor, end quote, authors Eve Tuck and K. Wayne Yang only mention capitalism in the footnotes, yet spend pages criticizing the Occupy movement. Quote, in Occupy, the quote-unquote 99% is invoked as a deserving supermajority, in contrast to the unearned wealth of the quote-unquote 1%. It renders indigenous peoples, a 0.9% quote-unquote superminority, completely invisible and absorbed just an asterisk group to be subsumed into the legion of occupiers, end quote. What is not even recognized here is that framing things in this manner completely, quote-unquote, erases any class differences and treats anyone who is not indigenous as fundamentally the same. This article even goes so far as to explain that, quote, the pursuit of worker rights and rights to work and minoritized people's rights in a settler colonial context can appear to be anti-capitalist. But this pursuit is nonetheless largely pro-colonial." From this premise, the authors naturally draw the absolutely reactionary conclusion that, quote, for social justice movements like Occupy to truly aspire to decolonization non-metaphorically, they would impoverish, not enrich, the 99% plus settler population of the United States, end quote. This approach is flawed in more than one way, not the least of which is that this purely identity-based approach falls directly into the hands of the capitalists who pit different sectors of the workers against each other to thwart any united mass movement. This is a very dangerous idea for the movement as it makes solidarity impossible. The slogan, quote, support indigenous people and impoverish yourself, end quote, clearly will only damage the movement. Supporters of post-colonialism, 
sometimes call for the overthrow of the quote-unquote settler colonial state. If they meant a united class struggle to overthrow the Canadian bourgeois state, then we would be in full agreement. But this is not what is meant. The entire non-indigenous working class, including recent immigrants and refugees struggling against racism, are labeled as quote-unquote settlers. The Canadian state is deemed the property of all quote-unquote settler colonists against the indigenous. They say that the Canadian state whose police regularly kill black and immigrant youth, that break strikes with back-to-work legislation, is the property of workers and youth. This is an appalling position. The Canadian state is the property of the Canadian capitalist class and no other class. In the 19th century and earlier, it would have been fair to call it a colonial state, dependent on British imperialism and the British bourgeoisie. But as we explained above, at no time was it the state of the poor European settlers exploited by the Anglo-Canadian capitalists. In the 20th century, the Canadian bourgeoisie cut the apron strings to the motherland and developed themselves as an independent ruling class. From that point on, the Canadian state became an imperialist state, no different in its fundamentals than the British, French, or German states. While both the far right, as well as post-colonial theorists, would have us believe that our interests are mutually opposed, the fact is that indigenous and non-indigenous workers have the same fundamental interests. We share a common enemy, the capitalist class, which oppresses and exploits all of us. It is a well-known fact that a tiny minority of capitalists own the vast majority of land and wealth in the world. The companies that attack unions and push austerity measures are the very same capitalists that drive mineral extraction projects on indigenous lands. It is obviously true that certain sectors of the population are more oppressed than others, and indigenous peoples are one of the most oppressed layers in society. However, we fundamentally disagree with the idea that non-indigenous workers benefit from the oppression of indigenous peoples. What these academics label as quote-unquote privileges are in fact fundamental rights and opportunities that in most cases have been won in struggle, and we should aim to extend them to all. It is true that historically the ruling class has conferred benefits to one layer of the exploited to convince them, for a time, that the system works in their interest. But this is a total illusion that must be shattered. We cannot do what many post-colonial theorists do and accept the bourgeois illusions which they use to divide the working class to continue their rule. Idealist Method Here we can see the fundamental divergence between dialectical materialism and Marxism on the one hand and idealism and post-colonialism on the other. While post-colonialism appears to offer a way to fight imperialism and racism, in reality, the post-colonialists come to the same conclusions as the imperialists and consequently offer no fundamental change. From the perspective of the ruling class, the dominance of Western capitalism and imperialism 
is a reflection of the quote-unquote more advanced or quote-unquote superior culture of Europeans. According to this idea, European cultures were more advanced, and because of this they were able to develop capitalism, or at least more advanced methods of production, than the peoples they would come to dominate. According to the capitalists, because of this quote-unquote superiority, European civilization was destined to dominate the globe. From the perspective of the bourgeoisie, this is the historical justification for colonialism and imperialism. The post-colonialists end up coming to the same conclusions as the ruling class, just from the other side. According to the post-colonialists, culture is the driving force of history, and it is the racist culture in Western societies that causes Western imperialism. Therefore, Western culture is inherently and hopelessly racist, and it is this characteristic that drives Western countries into attempting to assert dominance over all other cultures. According to this perspective, all people in Western societies are lumped in together as one reactionary, racist flock, regardless of the class divide, and therefore, there can be no unity between the oppressed colonial peoples and the oppressed classes in the dominant imperialist countries in a struggle against capitalism, imperialism, and racism. According to post-colonialism, this unity can never be achieved because everything and everyone originating in Western civilization is inherently racist and imperialist, including the working class and the revolutionary ideas of Marxism. However, as materialists, we understand that imperialism is not the result of the individual will of the capitalists, or a result of culture. Rather, the opposite is the case. Culture, politics, law, and society flow from economic factors. Marx explained in the Communist Manifesto how capital, once having saturated the home market, is forced to go beyond its borders due to its own inherent contradictions and spread all over the world. That is the fundamental basis of colonialism and imperialism under capitalism. Racism is the political side of this process. On the one hand, the bourgeoisie justifies their imperialism with racism, but in using nationalist and racist ideas, they also divide the working class along national lines in an attempt to rally a layer of the working class behind them and prevent unified class struggle against the exploitation and oppression of capitalism and imperialism. The post-colonialists basically say the same thing as the imperialists, and thereby rule out any united international struggle against imperialism. They boil down the struggle against racism and imperialism to the defense of historic culture and religion, or rather, the defense of non-Western cultures and religions against the cultural onslaught of the West. In other words, Post-colonialism sees the history of the world not as a history of development of the productive forces or a struggle of fundamental economic interests, i.e. the class struggle. They see it as a class of cultures, a clash of civilizations, which is exactly how the ruling class views it. 
In reality, these are prejudices of the petty bourgeois nationalists of the oppressed nations, and have nothing whatsoever to do with the outlook of the working class, which is instinctively internationalist. The idea that culture is the driving force of history is completely rooted in an idealist method. Idealism is based on the concept that our ideas are the primary element in the world, and that material reality is a reflection of our ideas. This is how post-colonialists come to see culture as the driving force of history, i.e., racist culture engenders imperialism. But as Marxists, we believe that there is only one material reality, and that our ideas are a reflection of this material world, and a reflection of our material conditions. However, we are not crude economic determinists or fatalists. History does not unfold in a schematic way due to economic factors alone. There is not an automatic and immediate relationship between developments in the economic base of society and the social superstructure of society. Marx and Engels explained this repeatedly. Culture, art, philosophy, politics, and traditions play a huge role in society, and in turn can impact economic development. But in the final analysis, culture and ideas are determined by material reality, by the class struggle, and the development of the productive forces in society. Thus, from the perspective of Marxism, racist culture is the product of the economic forces that drive imperialism and is used to justify colonial domination. The post-colonialists, unfortunately, fully align with the ideas of the imperialists. They do not offer a way of fighting imperialism and capitalism at all. Their struggle is against Marxism and the working class. Class Struggle Methods for Indigenous Liberation Sometimes, quote-unquote, decolonization is raised in the movement in a very abstract and idealist fashion. To suggest that we can abolish the oppressive and colonial conditions faced by indigenous peoples, primarily by changing only our thoughts, words, and behaviors. For example, in some post-secondary institutions, Left academics promote the idea of quote-unquote decolonized classrooms or spaces, while Marxists fight against all instances of discriminatory attitudes and behaviors, and actively work to convince non-Indigenous workers that they must stand in solidarity and fight for the liberation of Indigenous people. We understand that people's attitudes and ideas are shaped by the social and material conditions in which they live. A society based on inequality and subjugation of certain groups breeds ideas and attitudes to reflect and reinforce those inequalities and oppressions, to abolish discriminatory attitudes once and for all on a mass basis, we have to radically transform our social reality. This does not mean that we should not combat discriminatory attitudes in the here and now and educate non-Indigenous workers about the importance for fighting for Indigenous rights. But the best way to do that is the struggle to transform social reality itself. 
While capitalism pits us against each other in cutthroat competition, distorting how we relate to one another at a fundamental level, common struggle breaks down discriminatory attitudes by humanizing groups that have been unjustly painted as a threat and teaches the exploited and oppressed workers, both indigenous and not, that they actually do have common interests. Sometimes Marxism is critiqued in academia for placing primacy on class struggle. To this, we plead guilty. But this focus on class struggle has been incorrectly explained as amounting to putting other kinds of struggles on the back burner, such as the struggle against colonial oppression and racism. Nothing could be further from the truth. For Marxists, the class struggle and the fight against colonialism and all other forms of oppression are inherently linked. They are part and parcel of the same struggle. The fact of the matter is that non-indigenous workers do not earn more on average, have higher employment and housing rates, or experience lower rates of social barriers and ills such as incarceration because indigenous people do not. There is more than enough wealth and resources to guarantee everyone a high standard of living above and beyond the basic necessities. No one group of workers needs to sacrifice what crumbs they do have for another to receive more. Any argument to the effect that non-indigenous people benefit from the oppression of indigenous people is therefore reactionary as it plays into the hands of the capitalist class, scapegoating one section of the workers for what is essentially a problem of the system. The problem is that under capitalism, the majority of the wealth is appropriated by a parasitic minority, the capitalist class. To put it another way, the reason why some layers of the working class and oppressed have less is because the ruling class appropriates the majority of the wealth. The continued oppression of some groups under capitalism drives everyone's standard of living down in a race to the bottom while securing greater profits for the bankers and bosses. Oppression also serves to keep the majority divided and prevents us from uniting against our common oppressor. This only serves the interests of the capitalist class. The working class and all of the oppressed have everything to gain from uniting to wrest the wealth and power from the ruling class, but it has everything to lose by remaining divided and competing over the crumbs. Ultimately, as long as one section of society is oppressed, there can be no genuine freedom for the rest of us. As Howard Adams explains, quote, In Canada, indentured or semi-slave labor had to be secured and made available for businessmen of the fur trade industry. Racial stereotypes and prejudices then developed from the realization that Indians provided potentially cheap labor for trapping furs and for whatever the other jobs had to be done. Not only that, but they were found to be the most efficient trappers and fur gatherers. So European scholars and clergymen began creating racial theories which showed that the native people of North America and other colonies were primitives, innately inferior, and subhuman." End quote. Racism against indigenous peoples is therefore a fundamental feature of Canadian society. 
while many people tried to explain that this was something in the past. The results of the final report on the National Inquiry into Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls in 2019 shows that racism is alive and well in Canada. With the fur trade no longer being the cornerstone of the economy, the racial theories about Indigenous people have not gone away, but have simply changed form. While today, Indigenous peoples technically have equal rights before the law, the pervasive racism leads to the denial of good jobs and opportunities, perpetuating a vicious cycle of poverty and dispossession. This is rooted in the capitalist system, which uses racism to justify paying certain sectors of the working class less. Adams further explains, quote, By classifying us as inferior workers, they could get their work done more cheaply. Native workers are invariably treated in this discriminatory way, branded with the same racial stereotypes. Late for work, absent after payday, unreliable on the job, they are then forced to accept poorer wages. In my youth, I never solved the puzzle of racism in employment, but today, it is clear to me that racism is the product of economics." End quote. Marxists fight against all forms of oppression in the here and now, including fighting for reforms that would alleviate oppression and the impacts of hundreds of years of colonization today. But what is the most effective way to accomplish this, as reforms are never handed over willingly by the ruling class without a struggle? The best way to win any reform is through mass, militant, and collective action from below that makes the bosses and politicians sweat for fear of revolution. Strikes, mass demonstrations, and occupations are the kind of tactics that can wrest concessions from the ruling class. The struggle for these concessions must be part and parcel of the broader struggle for socialist revolution. Indigenous people have a long history of militant tactics, but on their own only represent a minority of the population. What is really needed going forward is mass, collective struggle that extends to the entire working class and oppressed peoples. When indigenous rights are under attack, the labor movement must organize mass solidarity and labor actions until the community's rights are upheld or their demands are met. Indigenous people cannot be left to fight against their oppressor on their own. It is in the interest of all non-Indigenous workers to fight for the liberation of Indigenous people. Our greatest strength is in unity, and an advance for one layer of the working class and oppressed is an advance for all. Similarly, Indigenous workers and youth must reject academic quote-unquote post-colonial ideas that will only result in the isolation and defeat of the fight against Indigenous oppression. A minority cannot defeat the Canadian ruling class and their state. The bringing together of all sectors of the oppressed is precisely what fills the capitalists with dread. The Need for Convergence The Canadian ruling class and its state have been terrified for years at the prospect of an indigenous insurgency. For example, in a government operations center document, the RCMP said that, quote, 
The Unistoden blockade camp is the ideological and physical focal point of Aboriginal resistance to resource extraction projects, end quote. Adding that, quote, Convergence can strengthen the arguments of these other groups, increasing the profile and possible effectiveness of their opposition, end quote. Convergence and an insurgency are precisely what are needed. We need the quote-unquote convergence of all the oppressed peoples and the exploited, i.e. the entire working class of Quebec, Canada, and the rest of North America. We must stand and fight as a class for an end to centuries of capitalist oppression and exploitation of indigenous peoples. But taking on the big corporations who, with the coordination of the Canadian state, are trampling on indigenous land rights while simultaneously exploiting their workers and reaping in billions in profits requires a unified struggle of indigenous and non-indigenous workers. Through such a united struggle, workers of all backgrounds learn and practice that they can achieve more by fighting together. Marxists place primacy on the class struggle because it is the sole means by which the capitalist system and the Canadian state can be defeated. It is through the class struggle, through the overthrow of capitalist property relations and the creation of new socialist relations, that the legacy of colonialism and racism can be tackled. The capitalist mode of production is based at its core on the extraction of surplus value from the workers by the owners of the means of production the capitalists. This is the root of profit, which is the capitalist's primary aim. Discrimination, oppression, and colonial subjugation play a significant role in maintaining the capitalist system, but the economic reality of exploitation puts workers in a unique position to bring the system down. Workers are the ones who produce all the wealth in society, and can seize the means of production to put them to work in the interest of the majority. While some people argue that Marxism is alien to the tradition of indigenous peoples, the fact remains that indigenous peoples lived a largely egalitarian, communistic way of life prior to colonization. What Marxists wish to do is to return to this, but on a higher level. Karl Marx once said, quote, a nation cannot become free and at the same time continue to oppress other nations, end quote. The reality is that there will never be any real solution to the question of indigenous rights and title, to the national question in Quebec, or to the exploitation of the working class within the framework of Canadian Confederation. The working class of North America will never be free so long as the indigenous peoples of North America continue to be oppressed and subjugated. The only solution is the complete overthrow of capitalism and the dismantling of the Canadian state and confederation. A voluntary socialist union of peoples, based on genuine equality, the broadest workers' democracy, and common ownership of the means of production, would have no interest in the continued subjugation of the oppressed peoples. Socialism aims to socialize that wealth under democratic control. Through this, indigenous communities would be genuinely involved in all levels of production and development. A socialist society, which organizes production and exchange to meet the needs of the people and not profit, 
would be able to resolve all the outstanding issues and injustices inflicted upon Indigenous people. The immense resources of this land would be able to put in motion for Indigenous peoples to provide a decent and sustainable standard of living for their people. It is precisely by freeing up all the wealth of society that the challenges and injustices faced by Indigenous communities can be meaningfully addressed, as they would be guaranteed the funds and resources needed to implement programs and services to meet their needs, and could democratically decide how to go about doing so without outside imposition. Under capitalism, the question of Indigenous rights is entirely subservient to the interests of the ruling class. The rights of Indigenous people are sacrificed time and time again in order to secure the profits of the capitalists. Under socialism, with a democratically planned economy under workers' control, production would be based on need and not profit. On this basis, we could immediately begin to work in harmony to resolve the problems of Indigenous rights, title, and autonomy and bring an end to centuries of exploitation, oppression, and colonial subjugation. Thank you for listening to Fight Back Radio. Fight Back is a revolutionary organization fighting for the socialist transformation of society. We are the Canadian section of the International Marxist Tendency. We actively seek to educate workers and youth in the genuine ideas of Marxism in order to fight back against capitalist attacks and austerity and bring an end to capitalism. However, we won't be able to do this on our own. So if you agree with us, get involved. We can be found online at marxist.ca, on Twitter, Facebook, and TikTok at Canada Marxists, on Instagram at Socialist Fightback, and on YouTube as Fightback La Riposte. For international news and analysis, check out In Defense of Marxism at marxist.com. The music in this episode was General Strike by Soul Jazz Orchestra. They can be found at souljazzorchestra.com.